It is so good to have your heart warmed and filled, isn't it? With the truth of God consummated through music. We are going to get more of the truth of God, and Lord willing, our hearts have been prepared. If you turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, as we move on in our verse-by-verse exposition of Christ's letters to the churches, having looked at Christ himself in Revelation 2, 1, we'll look at his teaching now in Revelation 2, 2. We're going to be talking today about a very humbling topic, if you're anything like me. And of course, it's always good to be humble. At least we say that in our better moments. I was like I was humbled during our trip to Chicago a couple weeks ago. We were on the bus from the Mount Evans parking lot to the terminal where we were, you know, taking the risk of taking Spirit Airlines again, like I said I'd never do the last time I took them. But how can you resist those prices? That's another story. But we were on the bus standing in front of the man, and I was there. I stopped in front, in front of a man who was seated where it said something like, please give your seat to the elderly or disabled. And guess what he did? He, he got up and insisted I sit down. That was a first. And I'm sure, as many of you will tell me, there's more to come. Yeah, it's good to be humbled. It means that there was some pride in there that I guess had to be dealt with. But that humiliation wasn't anything like I experienced a few days ago. Actually, it was Monday when I said something to Julie in anger. It was the truth, or so I thought it was the truth. Big qualification. So I thought, beware if you're angry, because it's likely not the truth in the way that it needs to be said. It was not in love, and once again, I learned just how false it is that sticks and stones can break our bones, but words can never harm us. Remember the poem, only a word of anger, but it wounded a tender heart. Only a word of sharp reproach, but it made the teardrops start. Only a word, only a hasty, thoughtless word, sarcastic and unkind, but it darkened the day before so bright and left a sting behind. And those stings lodge deeply, and so don't blame them if it's hard to get it out and to just start over like it never happened. Only a word of kindness, but it lightened a heart of grief. Only a word of sympathy, but it brought a soul relief. Only a word of gentle cheer, but it flooded with radiant light, the pathway that seemed so dark before, and it made the day more bright. What proceeds from our lips is not only a word. No, as Solomon said, death and life are in the power of the tongue. It's like the man who said, I just get it off my chest and it's over with. To which his pastor said, so is a shotgun blast. (laughs) We're going to be addressing an issue today that's dividing our nation as never before, not to mention marriages and families and churches, and that is the tongue. If that's not the very picture of what's going on in Washington, D.C. up uh, up there, I don't know what is. Our incivility has released like animal spirits into our society, our discourtesy, our ranting and raving from the Internet to the halls of Congress. Twenty years ago, Colorado Senator Mark Udall thought it was bad. He said this 20 years ago in the New York Times. So much of the storied Senate civility has disappeared. He said, from what I've heard about the Senate in the past, when comedy reigned, we've come a long way. The article concluded, many senators worry about the future of the institution and its ability to function in a highly polarized atmosphere. And I'm thinking they thought it was bad back then. God help us. 
It's like the great historian Will Durant said, continue to express your dissent, but remember to remain civilized, for we will sorely miss civilization if it is sacrificed in the turbulence of our incivility. It's what Paul said to the Galatian church, you bite and devour one another. Take care lest you are consumed by each other. Galatians 5.5. That applies in many ways. It's like Lord Chesterfield said to a, in a letter to his son, if ever a man and his wife, this applies from the family to the country, if ever a man and his wife lay aside all good breeding, their intimacy will soon degenerate into coarse familiarity which will infallibly produce contempt or disgust. To which I would only say, if ever a family or a church or a country lay aside all good breeding, that family or church or country will soon degenerate into coarse familiarity, which will infallibly produce contempt or disgust. For the family and the country, the word today is this. Continue to express your dissent and your disagreements and to work through your divisions and not to bury them because you bury them alive and not dead. But remember to remain civilized or you, for you will short, short, sorely miss civilization. You will sorely miss your marriage, your family, your church, your country if they are sacrificed in the turbulence of our incivility. All that and more was going on at the church at Ephesus. In Revelation 2, as we move on from the introduction to Roman numeral 1 in your notes, the Ephesian heresy, starting in verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, Christ says, and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and you've endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. Let's just stop right there. This is not as much a compliment as it seems in light of what he has against them and in light of a whole lot of other things. And we need to listen carefully. That's why he says at the end, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying here to the churches. It's like he's leading this church on at first and then he turns the tables on them as he would do again and again in his earthly ministry. So let's read it again and see how he does it. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary and they're thinking, yeah, right on, just keep it up, Lord. We know what we've got and we're proud of it. That's right, we've remained so faithful, persevering and enduring all the wickedness that's around us. But I have this against you, verse 4 that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and you will, will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. You see what he's saying here? He's saying essentially that what's wrong with the church is so bad that it cancels out what's right with the church. That is, he goes on to say, if you don't repent, of what's wrong with you and do something about it. I am coming to you, verse 5, and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. That is, I will decommission you as a church. I'll have to let you die. This is the only church he says such a thing to. And what that means is this. Yes, you've got a lot going on for you on the surface, but underneath there's something that makes it all a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal in my ears. And if you don't really hear me, get ready. That's it for you. This is the sword coming out of his mouth. You see, sometimes he, just as he disciplines his own children by taking them home if they fall far enough, he disciplines churches in the same way. Verse 
Verses 2 and 3 are not exactly a compliment. We know this for several reasons. One being this. In verse 6 he says, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Putting it in context, he's saying, You do have this in your favor. This, I'll grant, is to your credit in contrast to all that. To verses 2 and 3, which are not to your credit. This thing is good. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, but those things... Your toil and your perseverance and endurance and faithfulness to the truth and uh, against false apostles and evil men are not nearly as much in your favor as you think they are. This you do have. This is the only real compliment in the letter. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which has to do with cultural compromise. These types of churches or people are really good at not compromising with the culture. But they'd better attend to what they're not good at, and they'd better take another look at the things which they think they are good at. In verses 2 and 3, we see the things they are good at. But even these are not exactly a compliment. In the Greek, what's emphasized here is the word your. These are very short letters, but very deep and profound. Usually we just glide over them. He emphasizes the word your. Here's what it sounds like in the Greek, and I'll exaggerate it just a bit to make a point. I know those deeds of yours and that toil of yours, and don't tell me I know all about this endurance of yours, and you, put to the, you sure put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not, and by gum you found them to be false. And this perseverance of yours, yes, you've endured for my name's sake anyway, but is it really for my sake? And you've not grown weary in this hard work of yours for my name, but it's not really for me. That's the order, what the order of the words in the original Greek sounds like. Christ is saying, essentially, it's yours, yours, yours. And I'm not in there anywhere. Putting it all together, he's warning them of some draconian discipline because theirs was be- rapidly becoming, if it wasn't already, a religion in his name only but not really about him. If ever there was a backhanded compliment, this is it. Because he's really saying, this is your religion. All right, but not mine. What we have here is a pharisaical pattern that shows up in his church again and again and again. These, these letters to the churches represent many things, but they represent patterns that you can see all through church history. You see it in every generation. And you think, what could be so bad that warrants the death of the church? Pharisaism. It's called Christianity in name only. And here, what it means is this. Labor without love and truth without love. He's saying, all those things that I listed, the deeds and the toil and the perseverance and all that zeal against false teachers and false doctrine and evil men, in and of themselves, apart from something else, they are good for nothing and worse. They are a positive impediment to change because they kept patting themselves on the back for being righteous, for being religious, for being right, for being so you know, rigorous in their dedication to the truth and their condemnation of those who didn't live up to it. But it stunk to high heaven because it was a lot of light but no love. A lot of heat but little warmth. A lot of head without a lot of heart. A lot of verbal commotion with little uh, spiritual devotion. A lot of conviction without much compassion. And in verse 4, he slices to the heart of the problem. 
I've already alluded to it. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Love is the problem. Just how serious is this? Well, that's the New American Standard Version. In other places, that same Greek word, the word left, is translated abandon, which is how it felt to Christ. In fact, that's how the English Standard Version translates. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. The Message Version puts it even stronger than this. It says, you have walked away from your first love. Why? Do you have any idea how far you've fallen? A Lucifer fall. Whoa. We're going to see today that this is no exaggeration to say that it's a Lucifer fall. He's deadly serious, and we better be too. What's going on here? It's a condition of self-deception that can come over those who hold to a religion of the head but not of the heart. What can end up being a Luciferian condition of Phariseeism. They often say the right things and stand for the right things and they sure know how to fight but it's from the pit of hell. It's a Luciferian fall. And Christ makes it clear here that the world would be better off without such churches. First, it was labor without love. As as we put it together, the two main points of application. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, labor, and you have endured and, and have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. That's labor without love. And we'll look at that next week. But it was also about something else. You cannot tolerate evil men. You have put to the test. It's about their words. Those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you have found them to be false. But again, I have this against you. It applies to this too. You have left your first love. So it's not only labor without love. It's truth without love. Which will be our focus this week. Truth without love. You know, one reason why Christ threatened such extreme discipline is that they, of all churches, should have known about this. As we move to Roman numeral two in your notes, the Ephesian, uh, Ephesian history. Tradition has it that the Apostle John once pastored this church. Remember who he was? The Apostle who, more than any of the others, was all about love? Just read his epistles. And not only that, Paul had spent three years, and there's a lot of truth in his epistles, and he brought them together, but they went over to the truth and forgot about the love. Paul spent three years at the church at Ephesus, 30 years earlier, and on top of this, he had written a letter to them, the book of Ephesians, as we all know, which became a widely known circular letter for the churches in Asia Minor. It was like this classic, so much so that, of course, it became part of our Bible, of our canon. It was their letter, and you can be sure that they were proud of it, and they had studied it many, many times, so they were without excuse. Why? Well, did you know the word love appears in the book of Ephesus Twice as many times per chapter than in any of Paul's other epistles. In fact, it was Paul's first application after three chapters of doctrine. Ephesians 4.1 Therefore I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I told you all about that calling. With all humility and gentleness... All these apply in one way or another to the tongue as well, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager through love to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then just a few verses later, he sums up how we grow through all that three chapters of doctrine. Therefore, speaking the truth in what? 
love. Ephesians 4.15, that is these three chapters he's saying of doctrine have got to be expressed with compassion. Therefore, speaking the truth in love. And in the context of what we just read, it means in all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Speaking the truth in that way, in love, we grow into him, and he makes the whole body grow as we do that, as it builds up itself in love. So important is speaking the truth in love that Paul repeats it nine verses later in Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor. And then he goes on to qualify it as truth in love. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to all who hear. And then he focuses on the unloving tongue in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And then he concludes the chapter with a loving tongue, but with the famous verse, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, even as Christ has forgiven you. And then he sums it up in the next verse as he launches chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. It's all over the place in Scripture as we look at the biblical priority of truth in love. Uh, You see it in the church of Corinth, but where you see it most of all is in the classic passage in the Bible that is on the tongue, and that is James chapter 3, if you turn uh, there uh, with me. James 3, where it says if you speak the right thing in the wrong way, it becomes the wrong thing, and it can become the uh, very world of iniquity, and it can set on fire the entire course of the body. It's the classic chapter on the tongue, James 3, starting in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? That is, who among you thinks you've got the corner on wisdom in some situation? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. That is, he's talking about our manner here. He's talking about the way we say it, and he says, it's a, he says the way we say it is just as important as what we say. If you're truly wise, you'll say it with behaviors like the gentleness of wisdom. And then in the next verse, verse 14, he shows us truth without love. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. That is, it's a lie against the truth to speak it in the wrong way, to speak it bitterly or angrily or jealously or selfishly. If you think you've got the corner on wisdom in some situation, if you think if you're not speaking the truth in the right way, you're lying against the truth. This is the falsehood of truth without love. As I've titled this message, it's the Ephesian heresy. All heresy focuses on one side of a biblical teaching to the exclusion of the other. And this is ultimately a heresy against the second person of the Trinity because it focuses on one side of Christ to the exclusion of the other just as love without truth does because the two come together in him. 
Because if, as you speak, you're not showing by your good behavior, your deeds and the gentleness of wisdom, you're lying against the truth, the truth, capital T. You're lying against the one who is full of grace and truth. John 1.14, grace and truth were realized through Christ Jesus, John 1.17. And grace upon grace, John 1.16. He doesn't say truth upon truth, no grace upon grace. So of anything, we err in that direction. Again, back to James 3.13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, he says, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and get this, demonic. Whoa. This same truth comes from the pit of hell when it's spoken in the wrong way, which is why it's so deceptive. So indeed, it's a Luciferian fall. As we've seen, verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, that is where truth is spoken angrily or jealously or selfishly, there is disorder, God knows, and every evil thing. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first what? Pure, without anger or jealousy. You get the log out of your eye. Then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, The NASB translates this, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. And then he goes on to say, unwavering. Yeah, it it, it doesn't mean you're a pushover, but you know how to push. And without hypocrisy, that is you better practice what you're preaching with such fervency, or at least acknowledge that you don't with all humility. And then he concludes in the next verse, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That is, if you think you're wise and understanding, if you, th- if you think it's a seed of wisdom that you're planting, if you want its fruit to be righteous and not wicked, resulting in discord and every evil thing, you'll sow it in peace and you'll make peace. Which means this, it's not always possible, but a truth speaker Overall, will at all costs strive to be a peacemaker. This will be the characteristic manner of the true teacher. So it's a biblical priority and not just in the book of Ephesians. And get this, it's a priority that's so important, and I've already alluded to this, that it's central to both elder and pastor qualifications. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.3 that the overseer must be gentle and peaceable, which throughout the New Testament has to do with how you use your tongue. And he repeats this in 2 Timothy. So critical is his qualification. He was writing to Timothy again, who was the pastor of the church, and he said that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient with wrong, when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may lead them to the repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So we're called to be gentle even, especially with those who are in opposition. Just like it says in Galatians 6.1, brethren, even if any of you is caught in a trespass, 
You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Even the classic passage on the tongue in James 3 that we just went through is addressed to teachers. Not that it doesn't apply to everyone else, but Paul introduces it all, as we all know, in verse 1 by saying, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. This is a church of teachers, so this is for us. We will be judged by a higher standard, so beware not just what you say, that is that it's in accordance with the truth, but just as much how you say it, that it's in accordance with love. You will be judged by a higher standard, not just by what you say, but by how you say it, which is what James goes on to focus on, as we've seen. Because in your position, it could potentially set on fire the course of the body, as he says, like no one else. And it's vile, and it's from the pit of hell. It's all over the place in Scripture. Proverbs twelve eighteen: there is one who speaks rashly, like thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Or the old Chinese proverb, do not use a hatchet to remove a, to remove a fly from your friend's forehead. <laughs> no, the tongue of the wise, Proverbs 15, 2, makes knowledge acceptable. Yeah, truth always has two sides. It's like Warren Wiersbe said, love without truth is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy to just love them without ever speaking the truth to them. It's just live and let die. He said, love without truth is hypocrisy. Yeah, and we're going to focus on that too, but truth without love is brutality. Oh, Lord, said Peter Marshall. Some of you may remember that years ago he was the chaplain in the U.S. Senate. Before that, he was the pastor of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., and he was a strong, reformed minister, but he knew about the weakness of the reformed tradition, and so he said, oh, Lord, where we are wrong, make us willing to change, and where we are right, make us easy to live with. <laughs> oh, Lord. How could such good and evil come from the same person, even through teachers who should know better, who know the Scripture inside and out? I ask myself that all the time. I asked that last Monday as I got angry at Julie. How can this be? Because according to James 1, it happens all the time with all of us. According to James 3, I mean, the passage we're in, in verse 9 of the same chapter, he says, With the tongue we bless the Lord, our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening fresh and salt water? Can fig trees, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And then the next word, who among you is wise and understanding? Don't let this happen. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Bottom line, it's like Jim Murphy said in his sermon last December, a month before the congregational meetings in January. He gave me permission to read you some of it. And as you listen, ask yourself, did I have ears to hear this back then? 
And if you weren't here for the service, would you have ears to hear it back then? And will you have ears to hear it now that in God's providence you're hearing it once again from another pastor? When we are so sure we are right that we can't see our own sin, that we lose sight of the deceitfulness of our own hearts, that that inevitably leads to self-righteousness. It shows up as judgmental condemnation, standing up for what is right on principle, and it rationalizes harsh, demeaning words for anyone who disagrees. Listen, we need to have convictions about what is right and wrong, but vindictiveness and bitterness of heart combined with the supreme confidence that we are right puts us in the camp with the Pharisees, and we've seen what that means. We've heard a lot about truth lately and the need for truth, especially in our leaders. Amen. How can we function together without trust built on truth? But the scripture also exhorts us to speak the truth in love. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We don't usually do a very good job of combining these things. Either we will lean heavily toward truth with a capital T and hard edges and fail to show love to the people we are speaking truth to, or we will wallow in sentimentality and never get to the truth. We have to work harder to find the balance. If you are angry at someone involved in this situation, are you also grieving for them? Are you thinking of all the ways that they are suffering? Are you angry at someone, or are, are you looking for the underlying cause of their bad behavior? Bad behavior always stems from some unmet need in our hearts. Are you praying for their good? Friends, we need soft hearts toward one another, even when we strongly disagree with them. If you put into practice everything Jim said in this sermon, we would be out of the woods. It's online along with the transcript under December 9th, 2018. Turn back to Revelation 2. What we're talking about today is a Luciferian fall that's worthy of God's judgment if you take the time to listen to what Christ is saying here and to the rest of Scripture. It's a Luciferian condition that's just asking for some draconian discipline we've seen. And that discipline happens. It's happened to so many churches that we deal with at Interim Pastor Ministries. Like Will Durant said, they sorely miss what's been sacrificed in the turbulence of their incivility. He wasn't here. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The solution, well, it's simple. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Remember the book of Ephesians and all the teaching on the tongue. That's how they would have taken it. We'll unpack more, this more next week, but for this week, the bottom line is just to repent. It's just to say it's me, not them. Like all of us have to do in our marriages. Like I have to do when I finally stop pointing the finger at Julie, which takes time, I am ashamed to say. When I finally stop saying, yeah, I played a part, but, which is what I really feel. What are you doing? 
Sometimes it takes me so long to get there. Oh, it's me, it's me. It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I heard something like that two times this week from two of you. I think it was my 89th and 91st meeting last Thursday and Friday. I've heard the same from a number of you over the last three months, and it's just music to a pastor's ears to hear it. Many of you get it. I typed it down this time. I quote, you can't put the blame just on Rob, Bill, the session, or the congregation. Everyone shares the blame. And then one of them said, I learned at a very young age that the minute I do this, and he got over the table and Perkins and pointed the finger in my face, the minute I do this, I've got three fingers pointing back at me. It's not that we're going to turn a blind eye to other sins that were committed and mistakes that were made as we move through uh, this process, but it's got to start with you not them with all your heart and soul and mind and strength with me as we stand before him and confess our sins with everything that's within us you probably think I've been I'm standing today because I'm preaching but I'm also standing because I've been repenting of what I said to Julie last Monday and of a whole lot more. It's my resolution of intention supremely as a teacher to be wise and understanding with the gentleness of wisdom. Some of you may want to join me signifying the same resolution perhaps or the same confession of something you've said whether last week or last year whether with someone at home or with someone here. So with your heads bowed, just take a minute to ask him about joining me by standing in just a minute, wherever you are. So uh, if any of you want to keep me company... You can stand right now. This is now a solemn assembly like in Old Testament days. So let the assembly come to order as we turn to the Lord with all our heart and soul. You now have a solemn duty to bring forth deeds, as Christ said to the Ephesians, to bring forth deeds in keeping with your repentance. And it starts by going to the ones you've sinned against and asking their forgiveness. If you'd like to make this commitment to go to the ones you've sinned against and ask their forgiveness and to seek to do so whenever you fail to speak the truth in love, as we all will, if that's your resolution of intention today, I'd like you to repeat this after me. It's based on Isaiah 50, verse 4, which I read earlier in the service. Let me read it first so you can consider whether to make this commitment. He has awakened my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I will not be disobedient. 
Let me say each sentence first, and then you can repeat it as you feel led. He has awakened my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear. And I will not be disobedient. Amen. You may be seated. So now at long last, you can fill in the blanks at the bottom of your notes. The summary is this, as the musicians come forward. It's from an old hymn that's not in our hymnal, but that we will sing. Though I may speak with bravest fire and have the gift to all inspire and have not love, my words are vain as sounding brass and hopeless gain.